Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to church. I just want to say thanks for scooching in this morning. Thanks for sitting shoulder to shoulder. Hope you're with somebody you like or that you'd like to like. And make sure you say hi to each other this morning, okay? It's not going to get less crowded in the weeks to come, and we're all going to be okay. All right? So I'm just praying God will give us a spirit of hospitality and welcome uh, for each other, and especially for our kids who are down the hall. Uh, And before we begin, I just want to acknowledge that uh, Florida is in the dungeon a little bit this morning, so I want to pray for them. Is that okay? Would you bow your heads with me real quick? Our Father in heaven, though the darkness hide thee, we trust you. And we come to you this morning on behalf of our friends and especially on behalf of the church in Florida this morning, uh, asking that you would remember them with favor, that you would uh, stretch out your hand to protect life and uh, people's welfare. We ask especially that you would pour your spirit out on the church right now I know many are gathered without power this morning. Uh, Many are gathered in places uh, just where it's not flooded and they're not in their own buildings. God, would you give their people, their pastors, their leaders a supernatural wisdom and empowerment by your spirit. Make them a blessing to their cities and to each other. And we ask this morning as we're gathered here that you would lift up the name of Jesus in Florida among your people. We ask you to do that here as well. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we're continuing our walk through the story of a man named Joseph, but in a new series, as you saw, called The Dungeon. And Joseph, if you're brand new this morning, if you haven't been here before, Joseph is the story of a 17-year-old boy with big dreams for his life that is abducted by his brothers, sold into slavery in Egypt. He excels as a servant in the house of a man named Potiphar. He is falsely accused of of assaulting Potiphar's wife and then thrown into prison. And his story just goes down and down and down. But at each turn, uh, we read, the Lord was with Joseph. And we said a couple of weeks ago that Joseph's life is a proving ground for the truth of Romans 8:28 that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. This is called the the providence of God that God governs and controls all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that that raises a lot of questions. Clearly, the will of God is not the only will at work in our world, and often it is hard to see how any good can come out of some of the things that happen in our personal lives and that come through our newsfeed. Sometimes it is very hard to see. So we said a couple of weeks ago that the tension between God's ultimate control of all things and the will of evil is most clearly on display in the crucifixion of Jesus and the story of Joseph. And so we're going to continue exploring that theme this morning. And our main scripture reading is going to be in Genesis chapter 39, verse 21. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. And the chapters are the big numbers and the verses are the little numbers. It will be on page 33 if you want to borrow a Bible from one of the chairs in front of you. I would encourage you, if you could have it on your phone or a copy of the scriptures in front of you, we're going to... uh, Yeah, we're just going to spend a lot of time marinating in a few verses this morning, and I would love for you to be able to see them so you know if I'm making stuff up. Okay, everybody there? 
While you're turning there, while you're finding Genesis chapter 39, while you're turning there, we're going to start with a little Genesis trivia this morning. Is everybody, do you like trivia? Wow, I do. So we're, so we're going to all love it together this morning. I'm sharing this because I, I think it will, well, I know, uh, it will matter for what we're talking about today. A little bit about uh, how Genesis is put together. Our Bibles are broken into books, chapters, and verses, which is really, really great because it's a lot easier to say to you, turn to Genesis chapter 39, verse 21, than to say, hey, find that one story about the kid with the dreams and he goes in a pit and it's all bad. It's a lot easier than, than that. But originally, these books were not books. They were scrolls, and they didn't have chapters or verses. We added the chapters in the 13th century, but the original authors of these books had their own ways of letting us know uh, how the story was unfolding. They used the repetition of words and images and patterns and the cycling of themes to help people learn the stories, but those are also there to, to help make a point. The way a book is put together is actually a part of its message, and that's what I hope to show you this morning. So I've, just for an, as exa an example, I was talking with a friend this week. He's reading Genesis for the second time in his life, and he said, hey, you know, I know they, they stripped his cloak off him. His brother stripped his cloak off him, and then Potiphar's wife stripped the cloak off him. He's like, is that, is that significant? I mean, think of all the bazillion details you could include in those stories. We have two cloaks. I said, yes, actually, it's a way for the author to let you know. It's a signal, like, oh, something bad is about to happen to this poor guy. And it's, and it's to let you know all these stories are related to each other, okay? So just one example. There's a purpose to the way it's laid out, and the structure of the book is actually a part of what it's trying to teach us. And Genesis has one of the most beautiful and complex built-in patterns in the Bible. It's like looking at a, uh, just a really well-done quilt, if you love quilting or anything like that, or a well-done tapestry. You know, from a distance, you can see the whole thing, and it's beautiful, but when you get up close, and you start to look at the details, you see it's incredibly complex and really well put together. And that's Genesis. So we've arranged this book into 50 chapters, but the original author originally broke the book up into, into 10 segments or 10 sections. And the way you know where you are in the story is that each one is, is begun the same way it says, these are the generations of so-and-so says that 10 times. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of Abraham and so on. And then over on top of those 10 books within the book are four cycles that move through the story where we get to see the same themes taken up and then repeated uh, with something added to the story and in most cases the cycle intensifies from the generation before. Everybody following me so far? Are you awake still? <laughs> this stuff is really super cool to me and so you just need to hang with me, okay? Ten books moving through four cycles and Genesis begins with the promise that God is going to send a son and that son is going to crush the head of the serpent. That son is going to destroy evil and what we get in Genesis, the stories of sons repeating and intensifying the sin of Adam and Eve over and over again in each cycle. 
Beginning with Adam, God chooses a man and his family. He makes promises to that man and his family, promises to be a covenant partner with them and to make them a blessing to the whole world. And he's going to bring the blessing of Eden through them uh, into the world around them. And then in each cycle, the unbelief of the son brings a curse to the world instead of a blessing. They just don't trust God. They don't know him. And instead of bringing the blessing of Eden, we have brothers who want to kill each other, children lying to their parents, creation turning to destruction. We have exile and we have coming home and over and, and it just over and over again. This happens. And it just so happens, okay, that the 10th book, if you're still awake, the 10th book and the fourth time around are the same thing. It's, the, it's Genesis's way of signaling to you, okay, everything is coming to a head now. The story of this family is reaching uh, its point. Also, by the fourth time around, you know, as Joseph's story begins, and there's favoritism in the family, and there's jealous people, and people want to kill each other, and the son has serious character issues, and there's lying to dad, and the hero is cast in exit, you know, you start to feel like, are we really doing this again? It's like watching the Star Wars movies. You know what I mean? Are we seriously going to recycle the same plot with just a bigger, badder Death Star again? And that's how Genesis is. And it's actually part of the message. Genesis is the story of the world in miniature. Because by the time we get to Joseph, we're thinking, where is the son? Where is the son that was promised? And when is he coming? Doesn't it feel sometimes like this is the... I mean, since the dawn of civilization, this is what humanity has done over and over again. Every time there's a new breakthrough, okay, we found a new republic, or we, we, we have some kind of new scientific breakthrough, and there's this surge of optimism among humanity, we just use it to find a new way to kill each other. Am I lying or am I telling the truth? Say, everybody say, that's the truth. Over and over again, until at some point you just begin to you say, I'm not sure there really is any point to everything going on. Well, Genesis gives us God's perspective. And as the readers were invited to step back and see the whole quilt, the whole tapestry, and to see this thing. And we, you know, the more time you spend with it, the more you begin to say, wait a minute, I think there really is something going on here. I think there's a deeper current underneath all the nonsense here. And you, we meet this God who actually is the main character of the story, who is moving it all along exactly as he intends to do. And we see he's not done with the world, and he really is going to send a son. There's nothing that can hinder it, not the will of evil, not the foolishness of his people. God says, what God says he's going to do, he does. Okay? So let's read, we're gonna pick up right where he left off, Genesis chapter 39. Verse 21, Joseph has been falsely accused of assaulting his master's wife. He's thrown into prison. Here's what it says. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. 
And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in his custody, and one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each with his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, don't interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me. And on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I've done nothing that I should be put in this pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. And the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And if you have your Bible open in front of you, you see there the next verse begins, after two whole years, okay? As Porter pointed out last week, this last descent from slave to dungeon, the last step down, is because he did what was right. He is being punished because he honored God, and that stinks. Goodness and righteousness and integrity should be honored, and it's landed Joseph in the dungeon. But there's this extraordinary and surprising grace at work. Look at verse 21. The Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord showed him chesed. You remember that from last week? The Lord showed him steadfast, covenant, faithful love. And look at all that God does for him. Verse 21, God gave Joseph favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison, The keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners. Whatever was done there, he did it. The keeper of the prison, this is interesting, paid no attention to anything in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever Joseph did, it went well. That is amazing. Just like with Potiphar, God has made Joseph a conduit of his blessing wherever he goes. So much so that the keeper of the prisoner, the keeper of the prison doesn't pay any attention. That's a recipe for waking up with your throat cut. But such is the integrity of Joseph that the keeper of the prison absolutely trusts him and this is what the Spirit of God produces. 
in the lives of his people. I want you to notice, though, I say it's strange, because look at what God, what God does not do. It doesn't say, and the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and broke him out of prison like Spartacus and he freed the slaves of Egypt and put his foot on the necks of his enemies. That's, that's the way that we would probably write this story. Uh, and that would be steadfast love too. Okay, so in the New Testament, right, Peter, thrown in prison, what does he get? An angel comes and breaks him out. That'd be nice. Paul and Silas, thrown in prison, Acts chapter 16. What happens? They get an earthquake, cracks their cell open like an egg. Jailer becomes a Christian, they become best buds. That would be great too. Joseph gets the baker, the butcher, and the candlestick maker. (laughs) Older theologians call this the strange providence of God. He just doesn't do the same thing the same way twice. Your story is your story. And nobody else gets quite the same thing. So we should be careful about trying to read the signs of providence because God wants your trust, not your ability to read the tea leaves of providence, so to speak. And I'll just say, by way of personal testimony, any time that I... Do you know what I mean by trying to read providence? You see stuff happening and you start putting it together. You say, this is what I think God is doing. We'll talk more about this later, but I'll just say by way of testimony, basically any time I've tried to do that, it has gone almost the opposite way. It's as though God is just teaching Prince, like, no, we're not going to do it your way. We're going to do it my way. Now these guys, the the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, verses 1 through 5. The cupbearer and the baker are not just servants in Pharaoh's house. It says they were officers in Pharaoh's court. Pharaohs feared being poisoned, so they trusted cupbearers with their lives. And as a result, these officers of the court were very wealthy and influential. We have Egyptian texts, actually, that talk about the close friendship between Pharaohs and their cupbearers. The cupbearer was the king's confidant and sometimes their closest friend, and they exercised enormous influence in the court, and the baker would have just been on that guy's staff. But these two guys wind up in Joseph's prison under Joseph's care. Look at verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer, the king of Egypt, and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And just so you can appreciate the irony here, uh, the Hebrews literally, they sinned against Pharaoh. That's what it literally says. So just so you feel it, Joseph's in prison because he's like, how could I ever sin against my master? These two are there because that's exactly what they did. And verse 5, one night they both dream, two different dreams, each with their own interpretation. Throughout the ancient Near East, dreams were thought to be a message from the gods. And so that's how God chooses to speak to those. That's something to keep in mind, by the way, when you're interpreting Genesis. God chooses to speak in ways that people will understand in their own cultural context. These pairs of dreams are the author's way of letting you know this actually is the living God that's breaking into the story. In verse 6, they're troubled. And the author just gives us a little window into Joseph's character. The author is is just, what a change from the kind of clueless 17-year-old we met in chapter 37, you know, who's talking to his brothers with no idea how this might impact them. This, now we see he's, he's aware of others. He's concerned about them. He's going to make an incredible prime minister someday. Verse 8, another little crumb from the narrator. He says, don't interpretations belong to God? Why don't you tell me? 
The narrator is just letting us know Joseph is still depending on God, even in the midst of this dungeon. And so they tell their dreams to Joseph. He gives this like incredibly confident interpretation. He puts dates on it. You ever been to a, what are they called? Fortune teller. Ever know a fortune teller? They ever put dates on it? No. He puts dates on it, so there's, gonna, there's no doubt that when this happens, they will know the living God spoke to you, and I belong to him. Okay? Now, just real quick, verses 14 and 15 tell us a lot about where Joseph's mind is at. Just making us aware, Joseph is not trusting God because he's so happy about his situation. If we're tempted to think that Joseph is doing well because some people just do well when they're institutionalized, like Shawshank Redemption or something like that, or if we're tempted to think, you know, some people are just born to be slaves, verses 14 and 15 let us know that is not what is going on here. Joseph recognizes that what's happened to him is wrong. It's evil, and this is another important lesson for people who want to trust in the providence of God. He says, I was stolen from the land of the Hebrews. Remember, this is a story about human trafficking. And he says, also here, I've done nothing that they should put me in this pit. He's been falsely accused of assault. In verse 14, he calls the prison a house, but in verse 15, he calls it a pit. So if you're wondering how he's feeling about it, Pit is the same word used to describe the place of the dead. That is how Joseph is feeling about it. He's saying, I, I, there's no reason that I should basically have my life over. He's done nothing to deserve it. So Joseph is not okay. He is not trusting God because he's made peace with the circumstances. How many times have you been told that the key to happiness and fulfillment is to make peace with your cancer, make peace with the abuse, make peace with how the world is going, make peace with the death of your loved one. That is not what we see in Joseph. He has made peace with God in the midst of of his circumstances. So the providence of God is not a doctrine that should produce passive and indifferent fatalists but patient and hopeful Christians. Does everybody got the, you have the difference between those two? The providence of God is a doctrine that should produce patient and hopeful Christians, not passive and indifferent fatalists. So if we were meeting this morning, if we were worshiping in a neighborhood that was full of violence, it would not be okay for us to say, it's too bad, nine-year-old girls are getting gunned down on their way home from school, but we trust the providence of God. Oh, well. That's fatalism, not providence. Or when we hear about the plight of refugees or something like that, you know, we had Sarah Holstein here a few weeks ago. It's not, we, can't, we don't get to say because of the providence of God, well, if his house was bombed out, he must have done something to deserve it. That's called karma, not the providence of God. The providence of God is a doctrine meant to buoy and raise up the people of God to make us patient and hopeful, but not passive. And we're not betraying God to say, this is wrong, this is evil, and this is not what God wants. Everybody got that? All right. This is the hardest part then, I think, is is verse 23. After everything that's happened, it says, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. Joseph. 
but forgot him. This is what I want to invite you to do. I want, you to, I want to invite you to put yourself in the shoes of our friend Joseph. At this time, Joseph is 28 years old. Anybody, anybody like 20, 25 to 30? Anybody? Okay, not doing well in that demographic. <laughs> 25 to 30, and your life is basically over. Uh, no hope for a girlfriend. Everybody says, oh. No hope for marriage. He's been in slavery or prison for 11 years. He's been trusting God. He's been doing what's right. He wants to be free. He's in the prime of his life and it's slipping away. And now God has brought the cupbearer of the king of Egypt right into his cell. The man with the king's ear is being served his breakfast by our friend Joseph. And then God gives him dreams. What do you think Joseph is thinking? This is it. Finally. All my patience. All of my waiting. God, I knew you would not abandon me. This is it. I'm getting out of here. And then he interprets the dream with like perfect precision. And then nothing. That, that for me is why verse 23 is the lowest point of the 10th book of Genesis. Because there is something, okay, living without hope is a horrific thing. It's just a horrific, horrific thing. If you've ever been deeply and profoundly depressed, you know what I'm talking about. I think there's something worse though about having a glimmer of hope and then just to have it crushed while you wait. To see light at the end of the tunnel, to, you know, to think, oh, she's going to say yes to my invitation to go out. I'm going to get the new job. You just, whatever it is. Or, or, to, or to be cleared of cancer and all of your friends are rejoicing and then a year later it just comes raging back and it kills you. There's something about a glimmer of hope that just gets crushed that at least to me is almost worse than no hope at all. And again, there's a warning in verse 23 about trying to read the providence of God. There's nothing wrong, okay friends, there is nothing wrong or sinful about trying to read the providence of God, okay? In fact, sometimes we have no other recourse. Sometimes we just have to make decisions by looking at what's going on and saying, you know, I've looked at the scriptures, there's nothing like super clear on this there, I just need to make some decisions and I think this is what God is doing, okay? There's nothing wrong with that, I just am saying, that God wants our trust, not our ability to predict what the future holds. He just is not beholden to our timetables and our schedules, and he does not come through sometimes the way that we think he should. And if you're putting all your hope in that, it can be really devastating. Trying to read the providence of God can become a source of bitterness, because he's, what, is, what does C.S. Lewis say? He's not a tame lion. And he may not do things the way that we think. The, the main point here, you're saying there's a main point? Is he finally getting to the main point? Yes, there's the main, okay, the main point. What Genesis is trying to teach, and I'm really confident, is that whatever things may look like, here, here's the, the big idea today. Genesis is trying to help you understand whatever things may look like on the surface, there is really never anything random or haphazard about our lives. Never. 
I think I've shared this with you before, but if, if, if you had asked me this, you know, five or six years ago, if you'd asked me, you know, if Christianity is not true, what do you think is the next most plausible worldview out there? I probably would have said atheism. Okay? If, if the Bible really is a sham and the resurrection of Jesus actually is just this impossibly complex you know, deceit that's been foisted upon us, I would say probably the next most likely thing is atheism. I actually don't believe that anymore. Okay? The more I've learned about microbiology and the fine-tuning of the universe, actually the math of atheism just does not add up for me. Okay? That, that, so that ship has sailed for me now. So if you were to ask me today... I would say probably deism. So deism is a worldview that says, you know, it looks at everything around us and says, that, okay, something or someone made all of this. It's just too complex to have made itself. But whatever it is or whoever it is, they have left. They walked away and we're on our own now and he's not interested in what's going on. And I say that because for me personally, the greatest challenge to the gospel is the apparent randomness of the world. When I read the news or look at my life or, or whatever, it's, it's, just, it's the randomness of things that just I can't get my head around. I am okay with suffering. When I hear Jesus say, in this life you will have trouble, I get that. I am from Wisconsin. It is 40 below here half of the year. <laughs> this is what I've signed up for. I am okay. Half of you are Viking fans. Suffering is in, it's in, it's part of your nature. Okay? So it's not suffering per se. And I understand that bad things happen and we live in a fallen world. What is hard for, it's the randomness sometimes. It's the stray bullet that paralyzes the nine-year-old. It's the earthquake that levels a country too poor already to take care of itself. It's just that it's like how can this, how can there be anything good that would come out of this? And for me as I read this story, okay, by the time we get to verse 23, from a human perspective, okay, if you put yourself in Joseph's shoes, just walking around on the surface, the whole story just starts to feel like, come on, come on, give the guy a break. And this is part of the message of Genesis. Whatever it looks like on the surface, there is nothing random or haphazard going on. Trusting the providence of God, I would say, is like sailing on the ocean. On the surface, everything just looks so weird. Especially if you're caught in a storm. When you're caught in a storm on the ocean, everything looks completely out of control. But if you, ever, if you ever have the opportunity to see a map of the world's oceans, if you're given that zoomed out perspective, what you actually see is that there are these profoundly deep, powerful, irresistible currents under the surface that actually drive everything happening on the surface. These currents are unavoidable, they are unstoppable, they are irresistible, and there's nothing random. And a wise sailor knows how to ride the current. And that's kind of what the providence of God is like. Genesis has these ten parts. Even within the ten parts, there's a pattern. 
Each part has its own pattern, and in each cycle there are different patterns. In the story of Joseph, the pattern is pairs. You ever notice that? Everything comes in twos in Joseph's story. So, uh, let's see. We have, for example, uh, seven different pairs of pairs. Uh, we have two. J- Joseph has how many dreams in the beginning? Everybody? Two. This is a quiz, by the way, so you will participate. How many dreams in the beginning? Two. And then it's followed by how many fights with the brothers? There's a hint here on my right hand. <laughs> And then it's followed by chapter 38. You have your Bible open, flip the board to chapter 38. We didn't even read it because it's that random. It's also super PG-13. It would be inappropriate for children, okay? And it just looks completely out of place. But then you pair it with what happened with Potiphar's wife. We have two stories of seduction. Then we have how many dreams in this story today? We, how many, just, you know, let's take a guess. How many dreams is he going to interpret next week when you come back? Too. And then if we kept reading, we'll see Joseph's brothers devise two plans to deal with Joseph. Joseph devises two plans to deal with them. The brothers make two trips to Egypt. There are two tests of love. We get two sets of blessing and then two deaths. The whole book is organized around seven pairs of pairs. And if you ask me, there's actually a whole bunch more pairs than that. We've already talked about the cloak and the whole other deal. Why would that be? Because the structure is part of the message. And if you would just wait and look and read it for a fifth time, you begin to see this thing unfolding. And that's part of the message. The, the point is this, and we'll see this in two weeks, okay? Oh, two weeks. <laughs> it's a sign. That's a sign, okay? That's the Holy Spirit. I'm not trying to read Providence, but okay. In two weeks, we're going to see Pharaoh has two dreams, and Joseph interprets them, and he says to Pharaoh, this is the answer. He says, you've been given two dreams so that you would know this is the living God speaking to you and it is firmly fixed. It is going to happen. And that's what the whole last book of Genesis is about. Whatever it looks like on the surface for those who would wait and trust and listen to the story again and reflect and continue trusting whatever it looks like on the surface beneath there's this irresistible current of God's grace and providence that is moving everything along and everything is happening right on time. God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If if Joseph will just hold on Everything he's dreamed of will be here next week. Listen to this from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Listen to how utterly, utterly God-centered this vision of life is based on scriptures like Genesis 40. Listen to how radically different this is than the the message of, of deism, for example. He says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of of the devastating pestilence. The fall of serene leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. He that believes in a God must believe this truth. There is no standing point between this and atheism. 
There is no halfway between a mighty God that worketh all things by the sovereign counsel of his will and no God at all. A God that cannot do as he pleases. A God whose will is frustrated is not a God and cannot be a God. I could not believe in such a God as that. And that's the message of Genesis. This is the point of chapters 37 through 40. And this is why the book is structured the way that it is, that whatever your life looks like on the surface, however random it may seem, for those who will wait and trust and hope in the Lord, you will see the goodness of the Lord. There is a deep, deep current of God's grace. And he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called to his purpose. One more thing then about how Genesis works. What Genesis gives us, because we're the reader, okay? Genesis gives us this perspective. Okay, we can see the big picture. We see these deep currents of the ocean of God's grace. And poor Joseph, where's he? He's in a dinghy in the waves, just being tossed all over. And he cannot see. And you, you feel for him, don't you? I mean, if you have a heart... You read the story, you think, oh, how awful this would be. How, you know, I, I don't know how I would do it. But we feel, you know, we have this perspective where we get to see and we feel, but we, we, we get to say, just hold on. Joseph, if you will hold on, you are so close. Just two more years, Joseph. And everything you have ever dreamed about is coming more than you would have asked for or imagined is right around the corner. And God has been preparing you. He has heard your prayers. He has seen you in the dungeon and nothing will be wasted. And if you would just hold on, you'll get there. We get to see that because of where we sit. 10 stories, four cycles, patterns within the patterns. And we know the name of the son that's coming. So we can say to Joseph, if you just keep, just hold on. His name is Jesus and he's almost here and here's what he's gonna do and it's gonna solve everything. So just keep going. Why does that matter? Because it's your turn now. Don't you see that? You're the one in the dinghy. <laughs> You're the one in the story now. And what do you think is happening in heaven right now? What do you think the church gathered in heaven when they look at your life is saying to you or could or wants to say to you right now? Hebrews chapter 12, I think, tells us. Revelation chapter 6, I think, tells us. Would you just hold on? If you will just hold on, it's almost here. We are now in the third Christian millennium. It is 2,000 years. We are still waiting for the sun. And if the church in heaven could speak to you now, they would say, you are just hold on. Keep trusting. Keep waiting for the sun. You are being offered two radically different foundations for building your life on today. You can build your life on the whims of your feelings and your desires and your circumstances and what people have done to you, the shifting sands of your life, or you can build it on the solid rock of God's character and his providence and above all, on the work of his son. Those are the options laid before you this morning. Young people, 
You have a choice you can make this morning about what you are going to build your life on. And this is where the doctrine of providence and faith meet one another, right there in verse 23. Faith is personal trust when I cannot see it all. Faith is personal trust when I do not get to see the whole thing and everything looks completely random. God wants his people to rest and to trust in his purposes that are deep beneath the surface and what it produces is courage and boldness and patience and love for God. And you get to decide today what you're going to build your life on. Let me invite you to pray right now, wherever you are. I just want to give you a minute to talk with God. And if you have never before, but you hear God calling you now, would you say to him, I want to build my life on the foundation of your word I'm asking for your help to do that today. Almighty God, Lord of heaven and earth, we present ourselves before you today and we ask that you would search our hearts and our minds. God, would you show us any way in us that is half-hearted, that is not pleasing to you, and we ask together for the gift of faith. Father, would you make Faith Community Church a place where the people trust you? Father, would you help especially our kids to see the world as it truly is and to see you as you truly are? Father, stretch out your hand awesome things in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.